On today's episode of Afro Futures, I am going to be having a conversation with Tony Smith Thompson. Tony is an amazing organizer. Uh, she is brilliant. She works at the New York Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU of New York, as a senior organizer. And she grew up in New York City. She's over the years been known for the work that she's done with respect to monitoring and protecting protests and people's ability to engage in protests, but also has a history of being a student athlete at Manhattanville College, where she herself participated in a protest in what people arguably talk about as before CAP. Uh, there was Tony Smith Thompson. Uh, and so today's discussion is going to be really a conversation between Tony and I about what the world has looked like since her protest in 2003 and just what direction we ought to be going in moving forward. You're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. This is Afro Futures, and I am Yusuf Abdul-Qadir. I am here with my amazing, dynamic, funny, smart, brilliant friend and activist, Tony Smith-Thompson. Tony, I am super excited to have you on the show today. I just, as you know, when I was thinking about, you know, wanting to do a podcast, there were a few few people who I, I had to reach out to to talk to just to, to get th- their sense as to, like, what topics and themes, you know, I ought to be discussing, and you were definitely one of them. I regard you highly just as a, as a friend and a former colleague, and I'm, I'm super excited to, to have you as one of the first guests that we have on this show. So I just, I wanted to celebrate you and welcome you and, and thank you for doing this today. Oh, thank you so much. You are very, very kind and sweet. Absolutely. I do appreciate that very glowing introduction to be here. I'm thrilled that you're doing this podcast, and you know I'm always down to support you. Thank you. It's also true, right? So, um, and beyond just the numerous accolades that we could give to one another, there's some really important points both in your personal and professional career that are absolutely relevant to the conversations that we want to have uh, here at Afrofutures. And and I think it's important for us to to really center the conversation around just, it's going to be free-flowing, it's going to be honestly just thinking about what your earlier experiences um, as a student athlete, um, and and how that has impacted your current, you know, position and work that you do, and just where we see these these directions going. So, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna probe a little bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. ask you some questions. And honestly, I, I really do want I do want you to feel comfortable just have a conversation. Last year, it's probably said too many times um, that there was this quote unquote racial reckoning, um, and you know, I'm I'm the kind of person where like. If you just showed up to the party, it's, it's better that you're there than, than you didn't show up at all. So um, there's like no judgment for folks who are just catching wind to like the 400 plus years of systematic and structural inequities in this country. But, you know, for, for a lot of folks, this idea of a racial reckoning is, is, is not as new. Um, it's kind of something that has been a consistent reality of, of our lives for generations, as I, as I said earlier. And even though 
it became popularized with the role that the sports leagues have, you know, decided to engage, right? Like last year, we saw every sports league um, basically say that we're going to protest until there's some justice for for the constant violence that has been inflicted upon black people, whether it was the killing of George Floyd, the public lynching of Ahmaud Arbery, the murder of Breonna Taylor, you know, that, that where just the sports leagues and particularly the athletes themselves, largely people of color, largely black, um, and especially led by women basketball players, um, they weren't going to take it anymore. And they were, they were demanding that their respective leagues engage in action. And we know previous to that, right? Like historically, this has been the case. But in our more recent history, um, you know, people talk about Colin Kaepernick. And it reminded me of a story that a conversation that we had um, just about your role and your activism as a student. Um, and it's kind of like before there was cap, there kind of was you. And so can you can you just talk about, you know, what it was like to be a student? And for those who don't know you as much as I do, can you talk about what your experience at Manhattanville was and and your activism and just and how that has manifested over the years? Give us a give us an insight into that experience in that world. Sure. Yeah, this is a really interesting timing, too, um, because the other night I participated or I was the guest speaker at an event um, produced by students at Manhattanville College um, specifically to talk about protest um, and protest before Colin Kaepernick. And it's interesting because in the 18 years since I graduated from Manhattanville, uh, I really have had no relationship with the school. There has been no kind of conversation with the school about that protest. Um, I've recently learned through efforts to find footage that there's no footage remaining on campus about anything that happened during the 2003 um, season when I protested. Um, so there has been really no, no conversation about kind of like racial justice protest as it related to that year. Um, but now I've gotten several phone calls from professors at the school and students at the school wanting to reflect and talk about that year. So that is just one indication of this sort of reckoning, if you will, um, or at least an indication that the conversation has grown beyond where, beyond the circles where it was prior to 2020. I attended Manhattanville College from 1999 through 2003. And Manhattanville is in Westchester, New York. I'm born and raised in New York City. Uh, big up to New York, Yusuf. Yes, yes, uh, and York. so, you know, my college experience spanned the pre-9-11 and post-9-11 periods in mm -hmm. this country, where smack in the middle 9-11 happened. And I um, experienced the way our country responded to and, and reshaped itself after 9-11, both on the college campus, through sports, really watching the culture shift through sports as a student athlete, and then also watching how New York City Ground Zero was becoming, you know, was reshaping itself and sort of becoming the epicenter for what would become this kind of expanded uh, paradigm of, of law enforcement and militarization in the country. Um, and so just for for the benefit of people who may not be familiar with my protest the my senior year uh, as a sociology major and my senior year in school kind of came to this 
realization for myself that participating in the playing of the national anthem before games was not a benign gesture. Um, and it had never really, it had never resonated with me. I didn't grow up, you know, with, with any relationship to the national anthem. Um, it certainly was not a deeply held practice in my family household. Um, coming from a family who was also targeted by the U.S. government for their political views. And so that was a new practice for me going to college and one that I participated in for the first three years just because it's embedded into our sports culture. So it, it feels like a prerequisite for playing sports is that you have to participate in the playing of the national anthem. But post 9-11, um, that practice really took on new meaning when the... Um, patriotism light pre 9-11 turned into a really kind of bold, violent nationalism. Um, and especially as a black person, you know, feeling like you are being used to further um, American nationalism domestically and abroad was really a, a problem and, and something that once I recognized as a, as a budding activist, um, really felt like I needed to demonstrate to myself that I was really about racial justice and really about um, activism, then that I needed to have the courage to not participate in this practice that I had identified was a conflict between my values and my practices. So there was, and, yeah. there, was there was a lot there. And I, I just I want to unpack some <laughs> of it. No, because it's really rich stuff, though. Right. I mean, you you talked about the the way pre 9-11 the world existed and kind of sports being the epicenter, that kind of like tectonic plate, right, where the two worlds clash yeah. and collide. And I, I, I want to just sit with that for a moment, um, if we may. And then, and there, then there's there's so many other things that, that we can talk through in that. And then you mentioned something I didn't know about your own family. So I'm definitely going to have to take that if, if that's okay with you. But can, can, you, can, you yeah. un, can you unpack a little bit for us just – what you mean when you talk about that that relationship between the kind of proxy reality that we find ourselves when we're at sport of, sports events, right, pre-9-11. And, and, you know, I, I presume a lot of folks who may be listening may, um, may not, maybe weren't born, like, around that time and may, may not know what, like, their only, the only knowledge they have of the world is post-9-11. So what, what was it? What was that difference in, in pretty clear, explicit, stark terms? Yeah. Um, there's so, let's, uh, let's get my memories and history right. Um, so hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll do a good job. So, you know, I remember, some of this I remember, and some of this, you know, I am more familiar with now, having gone back and done research as it all relates to my own experience and my own protest and kind of the larger systemic um, kind of systemic issues and policies. So, but immediately post 9-11, we're in New York City, ground zero, and the, you know, the New York Mets and Yankees are sort of these really, they are, they are very quickly part of the conversation about how New York heals. And so there's a lot of discussion around when it is appropriate to resume professional sports. Mm. And um, kind of going back and reading through how they were navigating that, neither sports team wanted to be seen as the less patriotic team. So there was sort of this competition to position yourself as Amer like New York sports team, America's sports team in that immediate aftermath. And in, in the process of using sports 
as a vehicle for the country to heal, they they started introducing these increasingly kind of patriotic displays. Um, that was when they started introducing the playing of God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch. Um, that was when they started creating, I mean, I, I don't know, started creating, but that's when you began to see people wearing NYPD baseball caps and mm-hmm. FBI baseball caps and t-shirts, right? Like you started to really see these um, law enforcement and, and military appreciation nights and started to see police officers and military personnel singing the national anthem before games and paying tribute to them. You started seeing um, law enforcement and military discounts for, you know, to to stores and things like that. And maybe that existed before, I'm not sure, but like you see the expansion and the kind of the increased, um, really turning, turning law enforcement and military into um, into heroes in a way that didn't exist before. And in, in these years, like as I look back and look at how law enforcement and military were positioned during this immediate time, I remember thinking to myself, so now if you go to the airport, like the Hudson newsstand mm-hmm. um, at, at JFK, for example, there you can buy New York Yankees memorabilia. But right next to that, you can buy NYPD memorabilia. Right. And when you, right. When you look at that and think the, the New York Yankees is a sports team and they have opponents and they're part of a league where there are winners and losers. And I thought to myself, if the NYPD is like a sports team, who's their opponent? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so those are the kinds of things that were beginning to reshape our culture in new ways. And you know, whatever happens in professional sports is echoed at the local level, is is echoed in educational institutions where there are student athletes. And so a lot of what we were seeing in professional sports was echoed on Manhattanville's campus, right? Like the flag placements became more pronounced. American flags were added onto our jerseys. There were different kinds of ceremonial practices as it related to displays of patriotism. All of these subtle but not so subtle changes were um, trickling out into all of the local community spaces and influencing how we relate to patriotism and heroism. And um, and there and there is a there is a significant impact on that, right? Because that, that has created a new baseline for that that created a new baseline for how we view notions of, of fear, safety, national security, and those have never gone away. You know, I, I think in previous eras, like I'm, I'm not a, a historian. It's not, it's, it's not hard for, it's not easy for me to like conjure faction facts and figures. But um, in when you think about previous kind of na- moments of national crises or war, the the country maybe responded in a with increased displays of patriotism. Yeah. And then they went away. But post 9/11, they never went away. And you know, in New York City. The, the ads, the PSAs of see something, say something, the bag checks, the, um, you know, the military personnel with open weapons at subway stations, like that stuff really has not gone away, but it has created a new baseline upon which law enforcement has just continued to get these blank checks and unchecked, like relatively unchecked power. Um, and so I think all of that has fed into the, the work that I do today and 
kind of my reflections on why my protest in 2003 was so significant. And, you know, as I, as I, as I'm listening to what you're saying, like I'm remembering being black and Muslim in New York City and outside of New York City post 9-11. I'm remembering the kind of distinct differences of going to mosque on Fridays and um, the sense of like, you know, being treated very differently by various members of communities and people feeling the need that they have to like hide their identity. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's bringing up a lot of memories for me as you speak about that. But then there, there's, there's this insidious way that it's seeped into virtually every sphere of our lives in a faux patriotic, ritualistic type of way, right? And so I, I'm thinking about a conversation that I participated in last year, or perhaps the year before, around foundation aid in New York State. And so foundation aid, for those who don't know, is the way, the formula that's used to fund school districts across New York State. And New York State has not adequately funded particularly more poor marginalized communities to provide them a constitutionally required sound basic education. And I want to be clear to say like sound and basic, not like sound and world class or sound and dynamic or sound and excellent or sound and fantastic, but like sound basic education. New York State wasn't providing that to many, many districts across the state. And so we, as I was at a roundtable discussion with a bunch of school districts in central New York and some New York State senators in Syracuse, we were having a discussion and one of the people mentioned foundation aid formula ought to be used to securitize schools, right? So she was saying, you know, after 9-11, to your point, after 9-11, we hardened airports, we hardened, you know, government buildings, and we didn't harden schools. And we need to use this money to harden schools. And and I want, because you, you do a lot of education organizing work and you do lots of other types of work as an, a senior organizer um, with the New York Civil Liberties Union, but I would be really interested in seeing how that has kind of crept into other spheres of our lives. It's like this kind of unfettered fear, this this ritualistic, you know, faux patriotism that we use as a lever to justify further encroachments onto people's rights and liberties in ways that are not just insidious, but but really offends the ideals that we espouse as a country. Like it, w- it would seem to me that it's actually counterfactual to what we ought to be espousing, the promises that we make, yet that's what we continue to find ourselves, uh, you know, pushing towards. Yeah, I remember one of the first lessons I learned coming out of my college protest where there was massive backlash against me for you know, refusing to participate in the playing of the national anthem by turning the other way during, you know, during the national anthem. And one of the core or most consistent arguments people made as they um, wrote me hate mail or otherwise criticized me was um, that I should not criticize the country because this country is what gives me the freedom to criticize the country. <laughs> and it was really interesting as a college student to think about this, the, the contradiction between this idea of having rights, but not using them. And, um, you know, in that post 9-11 period, there was really this m- massive willingness to surrender our rights in the, you know, it, out of the fear of um, 
you know, national security issues, right? Out, out of fear. And, um, and that, and that does absolutely kind of permeate into all of these other spheres, into the education sphere. Yusuf, I know you've done a ton of work on issues of privacy and technology. We've done some of that work together where a common response from people in response to pushing back against like biometric surveillance and um, just kind of like day-to-day surveillance of people's everyday activities, a common response that we hear from people is, well, I don't have anything to hide. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have nothing to hide, you shouldn't have a problem with the government intruding on your personal life. And it's a really, it's a really dangerous way to think about rights that yeah. you only need to protect them when you feel like there's something to hide and not because they are your fundamental rights and that you have the right to protect. Um, and that willingness to surrender our rights has really brought us to today where we have massive um, government surveillance and spying and um, erosion of rights, suppression of dissent, right? Like all of these different rights that we often, we meaning like the collective um, can often take for granted when they are not the most pressing concern. Once those are eroded, it's really hard to get them back. Yeah. Yeah, once once you have a surveillance state that monitors your every movements, whether it's from your phone or from surveillance camera footage or from facial recognition technology, you, you don't go backwards from that, right? In fact, if, I don't know if folks have seen Coded Bias on Netflix, you ought to watch it. Um, but it talks about not just the problems with having a surveillance state, but even how the surveillance technologies themselves are inherently designed in ways that are biased against particularly people of color and women. And it's it's in that um, intersection between race and technology that I have found my voice in some respects, and I've, I've become deeply passionate about talking to and through these issues, but it, 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 it comes down to the basics of like, who are we as a people and what do we establish ourselves to be as a society? And, and it's, it's even relevant to the conversations that we saw on January 6th, right? And I wanna, I wanna be a little bit controversial in this part of the conversation. Um, because January 6th, for many folks, I mean, it's, it was surprising to watch, but it also wasn't surprising because it seemed that that was going to be the natural next manifestation, right? Like it just, what else could happen besides this? It just was crazy to watch it because like, wow, this is where we've come. It just was completely, I don't even have the words to describe what it was besides just I, I'm I'm speechless, um, and you know me. I'm very rarely speechless. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it, it, it's it's hard to find the words to describe January sixth. Um, but the insurrection um, was really deeply. It was a, it was an important lesson because the very same people who probably sent you the hate mail, who who talked crap about Colin Kaepernick, who um, you know were were very much like pro flag, were beating. Capitol Police officers with the flag that they say they love so that they could overthrow the government that they espouse that they are patriotic to. It just so it just it just revealed the disingenuous nature of that entire argument. It's never been about patriotism. It's never been about whether or not um, you have the right or whether or not you you know you you are able to engage in 
the free democratic society that we have. It's never been about that. It's always been about something more than that. And so yeah. as, as, as we think about like how we went from, you know, 9-11 to everything that happened from then to January 6th, I'd be interested in hearing just like your impressions about the kind of duplicitous nature of, of the people who probably sent you hate mail um, and were also probably at the, 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 the riots and insurrection, but also just the exorbitant amount of people who allegedly are sworn to serve and protect, but that showed up and facilitated and participated in the insurrection. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, you know, many of us, we know that these arguments are disingenuous. Um, they're, the way that I responded to this when I was meeting with students from Manhattanville the other day, um, they had a question about tactics. And I said to them, the conversation is really never about tactics. And thinking about you know, athlete protests and thinking about Black Lives Matter protests, it's never about tactics. It's the reason that the protest is happening, obviously. I said, if Colin Kaepernick had taken a knee during the national anthem and said, I'm taking a knee to honor all of our fallen brothers and sisters in the line of duty, what would the response have been? We would not be having this conversation today. He would have been praised. Mm. So it wasn't actually about taking a knee. It's always about control. It's always about controlling who gets to speak, who gets to control education, who gets to control the streets, who gets to um, set policy. I mean, the, um, the right now we're coming off of a year of massive sustained protests for Black Lives. Um, we're coming. We're in the middle of a kind of culture war over what gets taught in schools largely expanded because of the creation of the 1619 Project, right, um, envisioned by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Big up to Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, and, right, kind of expanded by massive voter turnout. And so you have this national wave of regressive policies that we're seeing to, um, to suppress voting, voting rights for Black people, people of color, to suppress protests for Black lives, Right. The goal is not to suppress protest for everyone, mm -hmm. because we saw on January 6th that it's actually not about suppressing protest. It's about suppressing protest for black lives. It's about suppressing attempts at achieving an actual democracy in this country for the first time. Um, and in the education sphere, the you see these attempts to continue to position the history of education as neutral and attempts at teaching education that is actually affirmative to black people and black students as um, not neutral, right? So you're in this war over what, what our baseline is, what is our standard, and anything that does not center and uplift white people as supreme is considered, um, is actually considered inequality, right? Racist against hmm. white people, which is not a thing, by the way, in this country. All right, we're going to have to have an episode where you come back and talk about that. In, in, the last, <laughs> in the last few moments that we have, I think it's really important for us to to uplift a few a few themes, right? Like it's it's never been about the dissent that you're engaging in. It's never been about the protest. It's always been about the fact of control of voice, right? And control over what you're protesting and control over what you're dissenting. And I see that similar thread between the kind of uh, if you see something, say something, right? This like now we need to get other people to watch other people 
that that manifests into it's not efficient enough. We need technology to do so. And then just how we've eroded all of our values and all the things that we espouse to be a liberal democracy that we've not really necessarily held up to. Because, again, you know, we, we can't forget that uh, in an earlier episode, we talked about COINTELPRO and, and we talked about how uh, Billy Holiday, from Billy Holiday to, uh, you know, Malcolm X, um, and, and throughout history, how we've seen this constant surveillance. All, all the, this is like COINTEL 2.5. Like, it's not even 2.0. It's, it's like 2.5. It's like their big brother. Big brother. Um, and, and, and we're trying to introduce this into our schools. And anyone who, who stands up to present an alternative perspective, a more real and appropriate perspective of the struggles that we've had in this country, whether it's through the 1619 Project, are going to be dubbed both non-patriotic, as has been done to Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project, right? like this idea of the 1776 Project, because, you know, okay, how do we move forward, right? Like, what, what are the tips that we have to, like, overcome this? Because we've overcome it before, and we can, but... I don't want to leave people with this gloom and doom of like the world is woe is me and you know we we might as well pack up and just go in our caves like there there is still opportunity to push back so w- what does that look like what what does resistance look like because that's that's been the thing that's been in us right and that's that's the thing that you're speaking to whether it's about um your protest in 2003 or the work that you've done since it's about resisting and endurance. And so what does resistance look like moving forward? I mean, I want to start by saying like there's anytime there's um, oppression, there's resistance and there's always resistance happening in ways that are is so, so amazing, so bold and so creative um, in ways that I like I couldn't even I couldn't even speak to. But th- that that's always happening. And I want to make sure that that like that's honored. Um, that there's constantly massive resistance movements, movements happening in this country by people all over the country, by, you know, particularly black and brown movement leaders. Um, but I think for people who are maybe not in those resistance spaces that are kind of a little bit more on the peripheral trying to figure out where we are, I think something that I think about a lot in my work, specifically working at the New York Civil Liberties Union, where we do a lot on like policy um, and and reform campaigns is that anytime, we know in the history of this country, anytime there's a movement for racial justice, there's gonna be swift and fierce backlash. Um, And I think at least in in the work that I've done, oftentimes there's a lot of effort put into campaigns upfront to sort of push movements forward and less planning done to anticipate and respond to the backlash. And I think for people who want to be good allies, accomplices, right, maybe people who aren't directly impacted, but also people who are directly impacted, who want to support movements for racial justice, whether that's movements to defund the police and reinvest in our communities, movements to transform um, our education systems, right, like end the school to prison pipeline, all of these ways that we have defaulted to um, carceral carceral responses in this country, there are a lot of people who really want to support movements away from carceral responses and systems. But in the efforts toward um, toward those solutions, 
there's always the backlash that and part of that backla backlash is to skew information, create misinformation and show why the movement cannot work to show, you know, to blame Black Lives Matter for rises in crime, mm. not on a pandemic, things like that. Right. To specifically create so misinformation so that people who want to support campaigns retreat and feel like maybe maybe this is too much. Maybe it's too far. Maybe we can't actually do this. Maybe this is causing more trouble than than solution. And so I think part of the resistance is resisting that part of the resistance is looking at a headline where a headline has quoted a police officer at the scene of an incident and questioning first, not believing first to say police police lie on police reports. Know that first and look through that lens. Don't look through the lens of just believing the status quo narrative in which the goal is to maintain the structures that exist today. And I actually think that's an enormous part of the resistance for people who are not directly in the work to question first, like question everything you've ever been told about black and brown people in this country, about how things work, right? Like question everything you've ever told about um, the, the, the like what black people are invested in and not invested in, right? Like we both work a lot on um, education and just and education issues and just looking specifically at the narrative that for example, Black families don't care about education, right? Like that is a kind of prevailing racist narrative in this country that somehow it is Black families that don't care enough about their kids' education. When the history actually shows no group in this country has fought more <laughs> and harder for access to an education in this country, mm -hmm. right? Like even little, n not little, but like specific examples like that to really question and push back on all of these kinds of, these narratives that are, that are, specifically intended to stop movements for racial justice. I was in a discussion last week around policing. One of the questions that we received was, you know, isn't the problem that, you know, black fathers just don't show up and aren't present in the lives of their kids, and that's the reason why it's not the police's fault. And I, I had to unpack that a few ways. I had to say, first, you know, it's really hard not to just, like, <laughs> it's really hard to not just try to eviscerate that entire argument, but we're in a place where you're a student and you're asking a question. So I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to answer this question. First, you know, the data tells us that actually black fathers are more present in their lives than most other fathers are. Contrary to what the popular conversation is, that's, that's actually right. not true. First. Second, you know, we saw this summer – I mean, you saw it in New York and we've seen it all across the country and, and, and across the state – just the amount of police brutality to people who were showing up to protest their right to exist versus the kind of tacit support and sometimes indirect approval of people who were trying to overthrow the government and, and in some instances, you know, celebrating folks who, who were killing Black Lives Matter and other activists. And, and so it's, it's, not, it's not the fault of the police somehow that they decided to show up to a peaceful protest to beat people, to club them, to pepper spray them, to rubber bullet them, to mow them with their cars and other types of incidents that we've seen. That's, it's not, it couldn't be that they just were overboard. It had to be that black fathers weren't present in their lives and therefore, you know, these kids are just so violent. It just, it just it's, it's completely asinine, but that's where we've come to, where we've had to accept and actually have to respond to those types of questions. And as, as we close, if you could just 
typify like why it's important that we begin to reimagine the realities and possibilities. And and I know that we have personally, and I'll, I'll have to bring you back probably to talk about other topics. I'm deeply, deeply interested in the work that we've done together on marijuana justice and using it as a case study for reparations. But, you know, I, I, I we can't, we don't have time for that today, but I would, I would love for you to just help folks wrap their head around, like, in the last few moments, why it is that, like, these small measures matter, but that we actually have to have a lot more transformative conversations, but also policy and, and, and positions towards getting us to a better place. I think uh, collectively in this country, people, people really need to ask themselves whether, whether living in a democracy is actually what we value. Right. I mean, and I, some of us are fighting for that, but America, this great democracy has actually never existed. And the function of policing has actually been to prevent democracy. And, you know, and I think what we've seen more visibly in the last year is that democracy is never what people were signing on to, specifically speaking about white people. Right. But not only white people, but when you think about people who this system works for in the amassing of power and privilege. Um, democracy was not actually what folks were signing on to. It's not what the founding fathers were signing on mm. signing on to. Um, and that is that is the reckoning. Is this a democracy or is it a white supremacist state, right? Um, where only certain people matter. And I, you know, I think when we talk about defunding the police, um, what we're talking about is envisioning a society that's actually that's actually a democracy. And it's um, how, how sad is it if we actually can't think about a reality where we are not, where we are not kind of driven by keeping dangerous things away, but where we actually feel safe? And there's a difference in that. When I when I do workshops um, on these issues and have people just close their eyes and envision being, think about a time when they were safe and like felt loved and really like, what is that place? Paint that picture of a place where you felt like home, safe. It's not barbed wires and fences and cops with guns keeping you safe, it's right? Like that. their presence actually indicates that there is something to fear, whether or not that's true. Um, and the calls to defund the police are calls to have us actually imagine a future that is different. Um, Cause this one actually doesn't work for any of us. I mean, even folks who feel like this system works for me. It doesn't work for you either. No. Right? We, we are a, we are a, a sick people right now in many ways, and very lacking um, of a lot of what kind of we need basically as human beings: love, nurturing, protection, community, connection. A lot of that, a lot of that's lacking under this system. And I think calls to defund the police are actually calls to reimagine all of that. Thank you, Tony, so much. You have just been listening to Tony Smith-Thompson, a senior organizer with the New York Civil Liberties Union, a really, really good friend of mine, and I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank I'm you, so Tony. so happy to be here. Thank you. This is Yusuf Abdukadir, and this is Afro Futures, produced by Kevin Kloss and Joe Lee from WAER. WAER.